The Evolve with Pete Evans podcast is a conversation about my favorite ingredients for a healthy human experience. We take an informed look at topics that include nutritional and emotional well-being as well as expanded consciousness. I love exploring the topics that are not traditionally taught at school and take a deep dive into them with my special guests. I invite you to sit back and come along for the ride with an open mind and heart and please share with your family and friends as these podcasts may just be the seed from which many things will flourish from. Cheers. If you would like to become a qualified health coach, then the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, or IIN for short, can help you achieve your goals. I completed their health coaching course many years ago, which has been one of the catalysts for my own journey into what I now love to do, which is to help people achieve greater health through the sharing of information through my books, seminars, podcasts, TV shows and films. I recommend IIN for anyone wishing to pursue a career in the health coaching and wellness space. IIN is a one-year course, so that if you're a full-time worker, busy parent, or wherever you are in your life, it is flexible enough so you'll be able to complete all the required curriculum. Please see the link included in the podcast show notes or my website to access the free sample class and first module of their program. This will give you a great taste of the format as well as the structure, and you can also utilize my special discount that I can offer you if you decide to sign up. Make sure you tell the admissions team that you're part of the Pete Evans Tuition Savings to claim your very substantial discount. Please visit integrativenutrition.com or email admissions at integrativenutrition.com. Chris Kresser is the creator of the ADAPT Practitioner and Health Coach Training Programs. He is one of the most respected clinicians and educators in the field of functional medicine and ancestral health and has trained over 1,300 health professionals around the world in his unique approach. Co-director of the California Center for Functional Medicine, creator of chriscresser.com and New York Times bestselling author, Chris is a prolific communicator. His newest book is Unconventional Medicine. Chris was nominated Best Inspirational Voice and Best Health and Wellness Website by Paleo Magazine 2019 and named one of the 100 most influential people in health and fitness by Greatest.com. He's appeared as a feature guest on The Dr. Oz Show and Fox and Friends, as well as in other national media outlets. And Chris lives in Berkeley, California with his wife and daughter. To find out more about Chris Kresser, please visit his website, chriscresser.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-K-R-E-S-S-E-R. Chris, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. How are you, my brother? Pete, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. Great to hear. We have been in contact nearly for a decade now, and this is the first time that I've had the privilege of speaking to you one-on-one and I just want to say thank you, brother, because your work has been instrumental, not only in my and my family's life, but for so many people around the world and for your tenacity and for your determination and for your level-headedness in the functional medical space and being able to present your information and that of the greater whole of the ancestral and paleo movement in a way that really penetrates through to the core and helps shift some of these I guess, belief systems that people have held on to for so long and offering them or inviting them down a different rabbit hole for them to explore. (laughs) Uh, You you do it in such a unique way and I'm very, very grateful and appreciative of all the work that you've done, brother. Oh, well, thank you for those kind words. I'm I'm glad I could be of service. That's, That's what I'm here for. Now, I'd love to start off with your definition of unconventional medicine, because (laughs) (laughs) I know it's the title of one of your recent books. And for anybody that is listening to this, hopefully it's not, hopefully it is their first podcast that they've listened to. But if they haven't, we probably track a little bit differently from how most people in the population would view medicine. And I love the terminology, unconventional medicine. So let's get into that. What does that mean? Sure, sure. I think, you know, most people can relate to experiences like going to the doctor. If you have high blood pressure, um, you know what's going to happen. You're going to be prescribed medication. 
to lower the blood pressure. And if you ask the doctor how long you're going to take that medication, they'll probably tell you for the rest of your life. And same is true if you go in and you have high cholesterol, you're going to get a statin to bring the cholesterol down. And there's rarely any investigation into why your blood pressure is high in the first place, your cholesterol is high in the first place. And this model is really what I call disease management more than healthcare, because you're just suppressing symptoms with drugs rather than trying to get to the root cause of what the problem is. And this model really evolved in a time, let's say the turn of the 20th century, 1900, when the top three causes of death were all acute infectious diseases, tuberculosis, pneumonia, and typhoid. And other reasons that people went to the doctor at that point were also acute in nature. So maybe an appendicitis or an injury, surgery that they needed or something like that. So that was kind of an appropriate approach at that time. But now seven of the top 10 causes of death are all chronic diseases. And chronic diseases don't lend themselves well to that, you know, one doctor, one treatment type of approach. And so unconventional medicine is what I argue is a more appropriate way to address chronic disease. And that's really the challenge of our time at this point, because if we don't get a handle on chronic disease, it's really kind of an existential threat on the same level as climate change and other problems that we're facing as a global society. Can you actually put that into perspective for us about exponentially, if these rates of chronic disease autoimmunity keep rising as they have been, what's the future? Well, economically, it's estimated that expenditures on chronic disease could reach almost $50 trillion by 2030. That's exactly 10 years away in most of our lifetimes who are listening to this podcast. And to put that in perspective, $50 trillion is more than the gross domestic product of the top six economies in the world. So we're not talking about chump change here. You know, this is like ridiculously high economic expenditure to deal with the global burden of chronic disease. But on a quality of life level, I can give you US numbers. I imagine they're fairly similar to Australia, which is also fairly similar to the UK and other parts of the developed world. But six in 10 Americans now have a chronic disease and four in 10 have multiple chronic diseases. And it's affecting Kids now at a much earlier age, 30% of kids now have a chronic disease. We have kids as young as eight years old that are developing obesity and diabetes. And that just has an enormous impact on somebody's quality of life. If someone becomes obese and diabetic when they're eight years old, they're looking to a lifetime of visits in the doctor's office, disability, you know, problems like neuropathy and retinopathy as they get older, where they lose loss of sensation in their legs and pain and impaired circulation, they lose their eyesight, and eventually they die an early death. And, you know, autoimmune diseases now affect up to one in six people, according to some recent estimates, and those can be very debilitating and even life-threatening. So whether you look at it from an economic perspective or a quality of life perspective, this is, as I said, I think one of the significant challenges of our time. Going back a decade or so, when you were promoting the paleo cure as a functional medical doctor, did you think we found the answer here? This is going to take the world by storm. We can actually <laughs> pull back the tide, so to speak. And here we are, you know, we seem to have a formula, a very basic, simple formula that can help put so many of these diseases into remission to a point. And I'm going to be very careful here and you can clarify for this. Also reducing medication, helping people live that quality of life that you're talking about. And what did you think back then? And did you think We've got it. And what do you think now in 2020? Yeah. <laughs> Having spent that decade. Yeah, that's a great question. I like that. You know, I, I actually think about the same as I did then, which is yes, we do have the formula. We actually know how to prevent and often even reverse chronic disease or at least make a significant impact in preventing and reversing it. We know it by studying ancestral populations that have very low rates of chronic disease and observing what they do from a diet and lifestyle perspective. We know it from modern clinical 
evidence, you know, biochemical evidence. But the bugaboo here, as you know, Pete, is humans and behavior change. Um, mm. So information, and I think this is where my perspective has changed in the last 10 years, is just a, a much greater appreciation for how difficult change is for human beings. And part of that is because we're working against some biologically hardwired programming that makes the kind of changes that I talk about from a diet and lifestyle perspective difficult. So let me just give a few examples. One is that human beings evolved in an environment of food scarcity. So for the vast majority of our evolutionary history, food scarcity was the biggest challenge that we face, not food abundance. So there were periods of time where we didn't have enough to eat. And so our bodies are essentially hardwired to seek out highly calorie dense and rewarding foods because that kind of programming would have protected our survival in a natural environment that was characterized by food scarcity. But when you then have that same human biological programming in an environment of food abundance where there's Costco or 7-Eleven mm. in every community and you can just you know walk into any store and get almost unlimited calories at any time, that programming then backfires on us. That desire for, you know, highly rewarding, processed, refined, calorie-dense food is working against us. So now when we want to change our behavior in that situation, it's not just a question of making an intellectual decision and then, okay, that's it. That's the end of the story. No, it's we're then actively working against this very powerful biological programming that is, you know, driving us to seek out these foods that are really not good for us. Mm -hmm. Another example would be that human beings are actually programmed to conserve energy when we can, because again, in a natural environment, we would have spent a lot of energy, you know, building shelter, acquiring food, whether we were hunting, you know, chasing prey or gathering, you know, the, the average human for most of our history, walked between 10 and 15,000 steps a day, and we had periods of brief, more intense physical activity. So it made sense that when we were safe, when we weren't being threatened by predators or other humans that were trying to steal our resources, or you know, when we weren't actively seeking food or building shelter, it made sense that we would then just need to chill out, right? And conserve energy. And that would, again, be a survival mechanism that would make it more likely that we would pass on our genes to the next generation. But when you then take that default programming to conserve energy and put us in a situation where we don't have to expend any energy to get our food um, hmm. or to protect ourselves, in most cases, that backfires. We just, you know, sit in an office and work all day. We sit in a car on the way to the office and on the way home. And then we get home, you know, have dinner and then sit and watch Netflix for a few hours after dinner. So, you know, that's very actually natural for people to do because we're programmed to conserve energy. But it's this relationship between humans and our modern environment that is really challenging to overcome. Mm. So let's talk about change. <laughs> yes, let's. It's one of my favorite topics. Because as you said, over the last 10 years, it's the one thing that you've come to realize that it's the most difficult. And I think over my course of this discovery over the last decade, one of the questions I love to ask experts like yourself that are at the coalface that are dealing with clients on a day-to-day -day basis is, how do you inspire change? Because as you said, intellectually, we know, well, once we have the information, the correct information, right? like our ancestors, our hunter-gatherers, what we would call an ancestral or paleo or, or some would say a cyclical ketogenic diet. And so we know that. We know to move our bodies and connect with nature, go for a walk, as you said, do those steps every day and perform some sort of movement exercise that isn't putting our bodies under undue stress as well. Because sometimes I see in society that people deem themselves that they've got to run marathons or these endurance right. sports, which is right. a little bit unnatural for us or a lot unnatural for us. So how do you inspire change to your clients and how do you come to peace with that, that it's not your responsibility? Yeah, that's, I think, one of the biggest challenges of being a practitioner and working with people is shifting out of the expert 
mode where I'm the person who has all the answers and it's my job to deliver the information and it's my responsibility to make you change and I'm the one that's doing all the work. That's kind of an outdated model. And it's actually still appropriate in certain cases. Like, you know, that expert model is, I think, appropriate in situations where, you know, let's say I get in a car accident and I am taken to the hospital. In that situation, I'm appreciative of the emergency room physician's expertise. You know, I don't want them to have to consult with me on every decision that they're making Mm. while I'm, you know, bleeding on the gurney, right? In that situation, I'm going to trust them to do what they need to do to, you know, sew me up and put my limbs back together or whatever needs to happen. And that's an appropriate situation for that kind of expert approach. When it comes to behavior change, we actually have a lot of scientific evidence now that tells us what is effective and what isn't effective in terms of facilitating long-term lasting change. So that's the key phrase there because just about any approach can work in the short term. But with when we're battling chronic disease and we're asking people to change their diet and lifestyle, not just tomorrow or for a week or even for a 30-day challenge, we're asking them to do it for the rest of their lives. We need strategies that are evidence-based that actually work. There are many different strategies, but to summarize the shift in focus, it's moving more from the expert authority mentality to the ally or guide mentality. So we become allies with our clients or patients in their change efforts. It starts to become more about asking powerful questions than it is about telling or giving advice or information. It shifts towards helping clients or patients to discover their own motivation and strategies for change rather than telling them why they should change. And even down to helping them develop their own approach, you know, come to their own conclusions and realizations and even start to make their own plans and set their own goals with our support and guidance. We know that that from the research that that's going to be a much more powerful long-term strategy. What we're talking about is what a health coach who is adequately trained can do. It seems to me over the years that I've been conducting these interviews and going on my own personal journey of discovery of self, I've been actively uh, peeling back the layers, as you will, on my own discovery of myself over the last 30 years, actively and consciously, is that so many of us in this society, we play the victim as one of our identities, where we blame others for our predicaments. And we give away our self-worth and our accountability and responsibility for others to fix our problems. So how do you, this is just an observation that I have or a perception, how do you, again, educate your clients to take that personal responsibility instead of saying, hey, Chris, help me. I want you to fix all of my problems. How do you inspire that personal empowerment? And is personal empowerment for the patient or the client the key to all of this? Yeah, I would say. I mean, my patient population is perhaps a little, certainly a little different than the average. My patients do tend to be very motivated and I'm never the first person that someone has seen. You know, I tend to be more like the 20th and the the end of the road. So it's a little bit different for me than it may be with like a general practitioner who's seeing people that maybe haven't come to that point in their journey where they're fully committed and ready to make the changes. But there is a framework as the trans-theoretical model or more colloquially, the stages of change. And... It came out of studies of addiction and how to address addiction in a more successful and skillful way. And basically, the recognition is that people are generally at a particular stage of change. So one person might be just thinking about changing. They're not yet actually ready to put things into practice yet. They're just contemplating change. Another person in the stage they call pre-contemplation, they're not even really thinking about change yet. They're perhaps in this example, they're just eating a standard American diet. They're not really even thinking about what they're eating and not thinking that they need to change. And then you've got someone who is already ready to change. They 
have thought about it. They know they need to. Perhaps they were just diagnosed with a chronic disease. They're motivated and they want to make that change, but they just so far, they lack the information that they need or the plan that they need. And so I think as practitioners, we need to be cognizant of this because the strategy that we might use for someone who's in pre-contemplation, which is to say they're not even really thinking about making changes yet, would be different than the strategy we might use if somebody is already committed to making a change and is just really looking for information and guidance. In that latter example, they're ready for that kind of guidance. And if you just were to offer it, they'd probably be able to take it and act on it. Whereas if you create some brilliant master plan for a diet change and hand it to somebody who is not even thinking about that yet, we can all kind of predict what will happen Mm. in that situation. (laughs) So I think I would frame your question, say, step back even further and say, the first step is just kind of like know who you're working with and where they're at and try to meet them where they are rather than to kind of impose your idea of where you think they should be, which is what we tend to do in those situations. Mm, individuality. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And skillful means, you know, that's a phrase from Buddhism where, you know, we have to be aware of our own agenda. And often our own agenda can interfere with meeting the person where they are and really building that trust and rapport and, and empathy that creates the foundation for change. That's what I believe. And I think that's what the research shows is that change in that situation comes out of a strong relationship of trust and rapport that's built between the practitioner and the client and the patient. And the more you can empathize and meet them where they are, the more that trust and rapport will be built and the more likely it is that change will be successful. Going back to the start when we were talking about conventional medicine, where people see their GP or their doctor for high blood pressure or high cholesterol and they're given the statins or the other medication. I would love to understand and for our listeners to understand about these chronic illnesses. How long did these chronic diseases and illnesses take to, I don't know if the right word is accumulate in the body, Mm for you to be diagnosed with something, let's say type 2 diabetes, for instance, or an autoimmune disease, can you develop these in a short period of time? Or do they take years or possibly even decades for them to get to the point where they're diagnosable, if that's the right word? And then people are looking for a magic pill or the magic fix. I know I get it a lot. People go, I tried that paleo thing. I tried it for a couple of weeks or a couple of months. And you know what? It didn't fix me. (laughs) Yeah. One of the things I generally say is, well, if it took you two decades or three decades to develop, put the weight on or the the illness, how long do you expect it to take to reverse that? And I'd love for your explanation Mm -hmm. of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. And the answer will vary from condition to condition. But I would say in general that chronic diseases will typically take years, if not decades, to develop. And you know, a couple examples of that would be with Hashimoto's, which is autoimmune thyroid condition. We know from research that the development of, of antibody production towards the thyroid gland can often precedes the onset of clinical hypothyroidism by years, if not decades. And in some cases, people will produce antibodies and never go on to develop hypothyroidism. So in our clinic, we test thyroid antibodies on everybody who comes in. And I frequently will see positive results in teenagers that are completely asymptomatic. They have no symptoms. Their thyroid hormones are still functioning normally. TSH levels are normal, but they have these thyroid antibodies. And what I tell them is, you know, if we do nothing in anywhere from five to 15 years, there's a high likelihood that you could develop hypothyroidism. But if we take some steps now, then we have a very good chance of you never developing hypothyroidism because we're catching it at such an early stage. With diabetes, some of the research suggests that if someone has pre-diabetic levels of blood sugar, then on average, they will progress with no intervention, they will progress to full-fledged type 2 diabetes within five years, which means, of course, some people it will take longer and some people can move more quickly. But even then, we could say that 
probably that person with prediabetes had high normal blood sugar for at least, you know, a few years before they developed prediabetes. Mm -hmm. So that is certainly one of the principles of functional medicine is that it's preventative rather than reactive. And, you know, Ben Franklin famously said that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And that's probably as true in healthcare as it is in any other arena. The earlier we can detect a potential problem and the earlier that we intervene, the higher the likelihood that that problem will never develop at all. Or if it does, it will develop in a much milder fashion. And then conversely, as you pointed out, Pete, the longer we wait to intervene, the more difficult it is to reverse that problem. And in some cases, it's irreversible. So if somebody has type 2 diabetes and it's progressed to the point where their pancreas can no longer produce insulin, then at least as far as we know now, even with the best you know, diet and functional medicine kind of approach, you can certainly reduce the amount of insulin that that person might need and produce some big quality of life improvements, but you're not going to completely reverse type 2 diabetes in that person because the beta cells that produce insulin are no, no longer functioning. We always want to be looking to early detection and early intervention as much as possible. And ideally down the track, in my perfect world, it is prevention from preconception through to birth and then onwards. Yeah, absolutely. Generation to generation. This is the revelation of epigenetics, which is the understanding that changes in gene expression that can be passed down to at least one or likely two successive generations now. So the choices that we're making now, Pete, they didn't just affect our kids, but they'll affect our offspring's offspring, so grandkids. So someday maybe we'll get to that point where we're thinking about two or three generations of the future and the choices that we're making. Yeah, it's such a controversial topic. And from my experience, I've seen, and, and again, this is just my perception, but with a lot of these childhood illnesses and diseases and children with behavioral disorders, learning difficulties. It's such a hot topic that very difficult to actually even say, hey, potentially the food that the parents were eating and the lifestyle choices they made have had an impact on that child. And it's nearly taboo to even bring up something like that. But if you look at it from a common sense point of view, from what you study, we need to be joining these dots and we need to be joining the dots rapidly, I believe, Yeah. if we're going to be doing this prevention. And I wonder how do you, and I don't want to put you on the spot here, but is that true that what the parent's lifestyle is will have a direct impact on the health of that child? Yeah, it is true. I mean, that's what the research tells us. And, you know, I think we need to be grownups about this. There's a difference in my mind between taking responsibility and blame. And I think people get caught up in the blame game and that that's so painful to recognize that, wow, you know, the way that I ate and some of the choices that I made may have had an impact on my kids. I mean, no, no parent likes to think about that. We all want the best for our kids and we would like to think we did everything we could to, to provide the best possible start for our kids. And that's probably true. You know, most of us were doing the best we could you know, with the information that we had and the, the challenges that we were facing at the time. And we have to always keep in mind that if it's true for us, it's also true for our parents and their parents and their parents mm. before them. So we're part of this long chain of, let's say, decisions and choices that were made. And so we are just as much victim may not be the right word because I don't like what that implies. Um, they're not victim in the sense that we have no agency or ability to overcome it, but we were subject, let's say, to choices that our parents made and their parents before them made, and we're not immune to that. Like, we can't escape that. And in the same way, our kids and then their kids won't be able to escape that either. So I think taking responsibility, and when that word responsible, I like to break it down. It just really means able to respond, Mm. Right. So if you take responsibility, that means you become able to respond in an appropriate way to that fact or that piece of information. And if you're someone that is already a parent who's already had kids, it becomes more important in terms of the modeling that you're doing 
in terms of the choices you're making that will, you know, be passed on in a different way to your child. Because obviously your genes have already been passed on and the epigenetics have already been passed on. If you're someone who has not yet conceived, then being responsible means just being aware of how the choices you're making don't just impact you, but may also impact your future generations. And that, yeah, I mean, that can seem like a heavy burden for some people to carry, but that doesn't change the fact that it's true. Mm. I mean, that was one of the catalysts for my own journey was my first daughter was born with a tumor. I was like, what the fuck? (laughs) How? And looking back, you know, I was an alcoholic. I regularly used recreational hard drugs and my diet was terrible. And I had to have a pretty fucking hard look at myself yeah. and go, was I responsible for this or partly responsible for this outcome? And, you know, it's been an ongoing journey of discovery since that point. And, you know, I do take responsibility partly and, and wholly for, I guess, not having the information at the time when I was yeah. going to conceive that I should have got my body into the state that it is in now. And, I don't feel guilt about it. Right. I've worked through that. Right. But it was a great catalyst and now the whole family is on board, you know, and we're thriving to the best of our abilities. Uh, yeah. So I'm grateful for the experience, but I also wish it didn't happen. Of course. That's the key. I mean, the difference between taking responsibility and then the guilt, blame and shame game, which is the former taking responsibility is productive because it can lead to positive changes. Guilt, blame and shame generally don't you know, they can lead to more of a spiral of despair and unhelpful emotions and actions typically. So, you know, it's like none of us can escape this membership of the human race and we can only just do the best that we can. There are certain things that we don't have control over. I mean, on an individual level, right? So like air pollution, that's a big factor that we know more and more about now in terms of its impact on health. But if you take someone who's living in an inner city, a poor neighborhood, for example, in Los Angeles or New York City, they're exposed to you know conditions that they have virtually no control over individually. Mm-hmm. So that person is not to blame for that. It's not their fault. So in that situation, it's just like, what can we do to mitigate these exposures that we have living in the modern world, which is just inherently not good for us. You know, that's not a very popular thing to say, but the fact is like the modern lifestyle that we're living is really out of sync with what our bodies need. And so the game is kind of, how do we mitigate that? How do we make the best of it, of the circumstances that are not ideal at this Mm. point? I want to go back to the unconventional medicine as well because people have so much faith in doctors and I'm not here to dispute that. But one thing that's been circling around for me recently is I'm a trained chef and I seek out when I'm traveling some of the best chefs in the world to to feed me, to nourish me with their skills and their craft. And I don't go to the fast food outlets. I choose not to go to the cafes where I know the produce is going to be substandard to the quality that I would be happy to put into my body. Yes. And just this year or last year, because we're in 2020 now, but just last year, I was like, it's really interesting because there's certain chefs out there that are sort of the rock stars of the world where they're booked out, they're at the top of their game, they're using amazing produce, they're growing it on the farm themselves or on the restaurant site, and they're cooking it with the most love and respect and nurture that they can. And then I was like, well, there's other chefs out there that have had the same initial training that are working in pub or a cafe or, or a fast food restaurant or whatever it may be, but they're still classified as chefs. And it got me thinking about doctors Now, you and others that I interview on the podcast, I would say you're like the three Michelin star (laughs) doctors or chefs (laughs) because you're highly sought out. You're putting the attention and the love into the work that you're doing. You're furthering your research so you're at the top of your game. Whereas there's a lot of doctors out there, and I don't want to make the analogy of, say, a fast food or a cafe, but 
that's what there is out there where they haven't extended their training to that of, say, the three Michelin star chef or the specialists like you are or the integrative medicine. So how do people, the population, where they just go down to the corner store for their cafe, for their whatever it may be, and they've got the same thing with their doctor, they go to the local GP and, and they put all their faith and trust into this person that has the MD beside their name or the doctor or the GP, how did they decipher whether they're going to get the right nutrients and information from that doctor compared to somebody like yourself? Mm -hmm. That's a really good question. I wish I had a, a good answer for it. This is, uh, of course, why I wrote Unconventional Medicine. And it's a big challenge because the conventional medical system is not set up to address the problems that we're facing today, namely chronic disease. I think it does a, a really good job of addressing acute issues. So again, if you get hit by a car, you break your leg, you have some other kind of you know problem that requires urgent medical attention, I think our system does a phenomenal job with that. It's also pretty amazing what we're able to do with technology, you know, starting to be able to restore sight to the blind and, you know, possibly fight cancer with nanorobots in our lifetime. So I have a lot of respect and admiration for certain elements of the conventional system. But if you're a person who is just feeling tired and, you know, maybe you're, you have skin rashes and you've got digestive issues and your, your thyroid's not working well, which is, you know, what the complaints are of now we know the majority of people, uh, six out of 10 now Americans, so the majority of Americans now have some kind of chronic condition like that. You go down to the doctor and the average visit with the doctor in the US is about 12 minutes. Among more recent graduates of medical school residents, it's closer to eight minutes. That's barely enough time to say hello. It's the fast food drive-through. That's right. It's the drive-through. And there are a lot of reasons for that. And mostly it has nothing to do with the individual doctors. I know because we train doctors. You know, we have a training program for functional medicine for doctors. And I can tell you from having talked to hundreds of them now that they wished it was different too. You know, they're as much victims of the kind of factory conventional medicine system as the patients are. They would like to be able to spend more time with patients. They would like the satisfaction that comes with feeling like they got to the root cause of the problem and, and really were able to make a big difference in the patient's life. It's soul crushing for them to have to just hand out medications and not really feel like they're making the difference that they often wanted to make. And that's what led them to choose medical school and, and a career as a doctor in the first place. So I want to be clear that the problem is systemic. It's not with individual doctors for the most case, for the most part. You know, sure, you have like in any profession and in life in general, you have some that will be better than others. But the problem is, is deep and systemic and needs to be addressed on that systemic level. So we need to change the whole approach to how we're dealing with this. And what I'm suggesting is that we know from research that 85% to 90% of chronic disease is driven by the choices we make on a daily basis, our diet, our lifestyle, and our behavior. And doctors are actually not the best professionals to work with people on those things. They're not trained, actually, to help support behavior change. They don't have enough time to do that in a 12-minute appointment. They only receive generally about one class in medical school on nutrition. So they're not actually experts in nutrition. And so I think we can make much greater use of trained nutritionists and health coaches in our healthcare system where they are working intensively on the front lines with patients to change their diet and their behavior and their lifestyle. And then we reserve doctors for the things that doctors do best. You know, if someone does for some reason need a medication or if they need a procedure to be performed or they need some kind of diagnostic testing, then that's when we can, you know, more highly leverage the use of trained doctors and then leave the day-to-day -day care to nutritionists, health coaches, and perhaps nurse practitioners and physician assistants who can perform some other tasks that need to be done 
so that we're using the best trained person for each job that needs to be done instead of just funneling everyone into the doctor, which doesn't really make sense and is not sustainable as we're seeing now. Mm, I love it. Recently, you were on the Joe Rogan podcast and you were having a conversation about the vegan movement. And what I love about what you do, Chris, and you do it so well, is you come in with the science and you come in with the research. And even yesterday, it's a second of January. And I open up our national newspaper and I go to the food section because that's pretty much the only thing that I read in the newspaper these days is the food section. And lo and behold, 2020, new year, new you, 10 vegan recipes, 10 plant-based recipes. This is what what the food trends are for this year. You know, it's more Mm -hmm. plant-based, it's more vegan-based. And going back 25 years ago, I, I ate vegan for four years and I felt great for a year. I can't deny how clear and wonderful I felt coming from a standard Australian diet to a whole food plant-based vegan approach. But then after a year, I was like, oof, that great feeling started to subside. And it it happened gradually and I held on to that belief for another three years going, I found the magic pill to the planet's issues, the animals, um, issues and my health issues, but I started to get sicker and sicker and sicker and sicker. And fast forward 25 years and I'm just seeing this this huge push through everywhere about plant-based. Even people that have been paleo, I'm seeing now they're going, no, I've adopted veganism and Mm -hmm. a a plant-based movement because paleo and keto didn't really work for me, but now I'm thriving in the last two weeks of trying plant-based. I've found the key. What do we need to be careful of when there is such a big movement here? Can veganism and vegetarianism, is it the optimal human diet? Because I was just reading one of your stories just before we did this podcast where you're talking about nose to tail is one of the keys to long-term sustainable health, going back to what you talked about before, that being the key, long-term sustainable health, because that is what I always promote. and Where do we go? Because again, there's all this information out there saying go Mm plant-based. How do we navigate and how do you navigate? Yeah, well, first of all, I would say just to frame this, there's no one-size-fits-all approach. That's always been a fundamental principle in my work and my approach is just acknowledging biochemical individuality. and And that includes the recognition that the optimal diet for you, Pete, might be different than for me, which again might be different from you know anybody else who's listening to this mm-hmm. podcast. And the factors that can affect what will work for a given individual are, are numerous, and they include things like our genes, our our gene expression, uh, where we live, for example, what you eat in you know in the summer in Australia might be different than what someone would eat, you know, cold winter, northern climate, mm-hmm. our health status. So somebody who is has an autoimmune disease and is trying to use diet to address that therapeutically might have a very different diet than somebody who's training for the Olympics, you mm-hmm. know, and trying to add muscle. I mean, we could just go on. There's so many factors that affect what is optimal. Likewise, there are also many things that affect how someone might succeed or not succeed on any number of different dietary approaches. So if we use veganism as an example or completely plant-based diet, one of the challenges there is that those diets can be low in certain nutrients. Retinol, which is the active form of vitamin A, is an example. Calcium is an example. Vitamin K2 is another example. B12 is an example. EPA and DHA, which are the long-chain omega-3 fats, are examples. And in some cases, let's say vitamin K2 and retinol and EPA and DHA, the body is able to convert, in theory, precursor nutrients to those more active forms of nutrients. So with retinol, which is the active form of vitamin A, we can convert beta carotene in bright colored vegetables, the red peppers and carrots and things like that. For EPA and DHA, which are the long chain omega-3 fats, we can convert alpha linolenic acid, which is found in like walnuts and flax seeds, 
with K2, we can convert vitamin K1, which is found in leafy greens, among other foods. But what we know from the research is that the conversion of those precursor nutrients into the active forms varies tremendously from person to person. Mm -hmm. So an example of this, if you've ever seen someone who's been doing a juice fast and drinking tons of carrot juice and the palms of their hands look orange, that's probably someone who can't convert beta carotene into retinol Mm -hmm. very well. So that explains why somebody like me can go on a vegan diet and feel good for three to six months and then start to really feel poorly. Or you, Pete, can do it for a year and maintain your health. And somebody else like Rich Roll or other you know, phenomenal vegan athletes who've been able to thrive on a vegan diet for a long period of time. And that all is explained by this biochemical individuality. So I just wanted to start there because I think that's very important to understand. Mm. And it does clear up maybe some of the confusion when people say, well, that person has been vegan and is doing great. So why can't I do that? You know, it doesn't work like that. (laughs) Maybe you can, maybe you can. But in terms of the claim that a vegan diet is optimal for all humans, I think we can quite objectively say that that's not the case because of the tendency for vegans to be significantly lower in many of the nutrients, including the ones that I mentioned without supplementation. And in cases like B12, you can't actually even obtain adequate amounts of B12 from a vegan diet without supplementation. So I've advocated for many years that the optimal approach, whether you look at it from an anthropological perspective or a modern biochemical perspective is, we might use the term Nutrivore. It's a nutrient-dense whole foods diet that includes both plant and animal foods. That's what I think the research is pointing most strongly to. Does that mean that it's impossible for someone to thrive on a completely plant-based diet or even a carnivore diet where they're only eating meat? No, it seemed that we have examples of people thriving in both of those situations. But if you're asking what is optimal for the greatest number of people, according to the widest range of evidence that we can draw from, I would say a combination of plant and animal foods. So if you're going to go to the casino and red is veganism and black is carnivore, you'd go somewhere in between. (laughs) That's right. You'd hedge your bets. You know, the way I frame it is, do we know with certainty that a carnivore diet is harmful? No, we don't. But do we know with certainty that it's safe over a long period of time? No, we don't. Because we don't have any examples that we can point to of populations that followed that approach for a long period of time. And so we can't look at their health outcomes and come to any conclusions. And there's also quite a bit of modern clinical evidence that suggests that plants do play an important role in the diet in terms of feeding our beneficial gut microbiome and phytonutrients and things like that. So I think it's just introducing an element of uncertainty. It's interesting that you use that gambling analogy because that's often what I use as well. It's like, it's a gamble and it might pay off like all gambles do, but it might not. And so if you are aware of that and you accept that, then that's fine. And look, most people who are doing a carnivore approach aren't doing it because that's just the way they prefer to eat. They're doing it because it's the only thing they've found that has reversed their autoimmune disease or any other problem that they're trying to deal with. And if being on a carnivore diet dramatically reduces inflammatory markers and leads to all kinds of other health improvements, then maybe that more than cancels out some of the downsides from a nutritional perspective. I don't know. That's, again, what what nobody knows because we don't have any long-term data. So at the end of the day, people just have to make their own decisions about things like that. Over your time in practice and dealing with clients, has it become more simple, your approach, or more complicated with the more information that you're learning more and more often? Do you get bewildered by the amount of information out there. And I know that you love gathering research and understanding. So with all of this information that keeps popping out, how do you simplify it 
And do you like simplifying it for your clients? Mm -hmm. I do. And it's another great question. I would definitely say that over time, my approach is more and more streamlined and more simple. In fact, I often have said over the past couple of years, as I get deeper into this work, I start to function more like a health coach and less like a functional medicine practitioner. And that's not to say that functional medicine isn't critical, especially at certain key milestones, you know, in the health journey. But increasingly, I see that it's the choices that we make on a daily basis. Again, you know, starting with when we first get out of bed in the morning, you know, do we pick up our phone and start looking at Facebook or social media or checking our email or do we go over and sit on the meditation cushion or do we go out and take a run uh, or do we play with our kids or, and like what we eat for breakfast and then um, how we relate to our partner, you know, the quality of the conversation that we have with our partner. And do we then, you know, go outside and get some sunshine exposure or fresh air, you know, like all of these choices that we're making from moment to moment, I think are really the biggest drivers of health and disease and our quality of life. And at the end of the day, sometimes I think people can get a little bit too distracted with the latest theory and the latest research and, you know, doing tons and tons of lab testing and, you know, biohacking and quantified self and all of this stuff can actually detract and distract from the key things that we need to have our attention on on a moment-to-moment basis. So what does the future hold for Chris Kresser? You've put yourself out there as one of the leading experts in health and nutrition and functional medicine and training doctors to understand how to look at a patient with maybe a different lens with different information. What, what does the next decade hold for Chris? I think this focus that we've been talking about for a lot of the show on behavior change and helping people to make successful and lasting changes is where my attention is now. And also helping people to adapt to modern life, to their own life circumstances in an individual situation is where my attention is going now. Because as I said, you know, we can have all the information, but it's really useless if we don't know how to act on it and put it into practice. And I feel like that's where we've been for the last, you know, 10 to 15 years. You started off the show with a great question about, you know, how do I feel now versus how I felt 10 years ago when I was writing the paleo cure? That is the biggest shift where the information hasn't changed. There's, there's very little actually that's changed in terms of my recommendations, but my focus has shifted more toward, you know, supporting people to basically become better versions of themselves and figuring out the algorithm and the key to making these successful behavior changes over a lasting period because from what I can see, that's the only chance we have of addressing these issues. And functional medicine continues to be a part of that and I think always will be. But health coaching is playing an increasingly larger role. And we actually, I've been training functional medicine clinicians for several years now, but two years ago now in 2018, we launched our health coach training program because I really see that health coaching is going to be a crucial part of the future of medicine and healthcare because they are the the people who can actually support people, support clients in making those changes that we've been talking about today. And fast forward 10 years with 60% of Americans now with a chronic disease in 2020, how is it going to change? Will it change over the next decade or... Do you think if we had this conversation in 10 years' time, it would be 75% of Americans, or do you think we can pull it back the other way? Well, it's a, a tough question to answer. I suppose, you know, I can look at it in two different ways. One is that we take a proactive approach and we really start shifting our focus away from disease management and towards true health care. And we really start emphasizing a preventative focus more. So again, if we use an example, going back to the person with diabetes, let's say they went into their doctor five years prior to being diagnosed with full-fledged diabetes and the doctor saw that they had high normal blood sugar. Instead of just dismissing them or you know not really doing anything, they set them up with a health coach and a nutritionist and maybe even a personal trainer that was associated with the medical clinic and got them on a you know exercise program, eating well, 
and sleeping better and taking care of themselves, that person then never develops diabetes in the first place. That is totally possible and is completely within the realm of you know, our existing technology and even would save money for the healthcare system rather than cost more. But whether we have the political will to do that, if that's actually going to happen in the face of some of the vested interests that don't necessarily want to see those changes happen, that don't profit from those changes, that's a different question entirely. And the other scenario is that we don't make those proactive changes and the trajectory continues along its current course and our healthcare system falls apart. And that's kind of, unfortunately, the the trajectory that we're on right now, if nothing changes. Either way, I think we end up in the same place because if that healthcare system falls apart, it will have to be rebuilt. And when it's rebuilt, I think it will be done in a way that is more attentive to the what our current needs are. I am hoping for the more proactive transition. And that's why I wrote the book and continue to do the work that I'm doing. I'm optimistic. And I also recognize that that is only one possible outcome. And we need to be prepared for whatever happens. And whatever does happen, we'll get there. I just would prefer it to be the less painful way. Mm, I love it. That was going to be my last question, but something else has popped into my head that I wanted to ask you earlier, if you don't mind. It's a quick one. Gestational diabetes, thinking about the coming generations. And one of the big questions that constantly or statements that keeps coming up for me on my social media is women that have been diagnosed with gestational diabetes and then what happens to them in that system, in the current medical system. And can you explain what it is and what that means when people are presented with this information and it it freaks them out? Yeah, it is a it is a really challenging situation for a number of reasons, but it's a type of diabetes that's first seen in a pregnant woman who didn't have diabetes before she was pregnant. So it can come as quite a shock to a woman who you know goes into pregnancy and is non-diabetic, doesn't have any issues, and then all of a sudden develops diabetes during pregnancy. And it usually shows up not right away in the pregnancy. It's usually more in the middle of pregnancy. And it is a potentially serious condition and and doctors really emphasize that. And that's another reason it can be scary for women. It can lead to baby's blood sugar being high and then can lead to a very high birth weight that can increase the risk of C-section delivery. It can increase the risk of preeclampsia in the, the pregnant mom, which is a very serious problem that needs to be watched closely and managed and can have some potentially life-threatening consequences. It can be also associated with what's called reactive hypoglycemia, which is a situation where you kind of experience highs and lows of blood sugar. So I think it's right to be concerned about it. And doctors and and OBGYNs who are uh, managing women in pregnancy are absolutely (laughs) need to be uh, watching this carefully and be concerned about it. However, I think that sometimes the reaction can be a little bit extreme in terms of the conventional approach. I mean, there's a lot of evidence that shows that if they're not already on a really healthy diet, that switching to a more nutrient-dense diet, a whole foods nutrient-dense diet can make a, a big impact as it does with any kind of diabetes. Same thing with exercising regularly during pregnancy in a way that's safe can make a big impact. And Doing a lot of the same diet and lifestyle things that we do, you know, we recommend in any other stage of life can be very helpful here. And then just watching and monitoring closely before maybe going right to medical intervention. So for me, it's, yes, it's something we need to be cautious with and and to monitor closely, but there's often a lot that can be done from a diet and lifestyle perspective that, that can be helpful. Mm, and I guess that, that fits in with everything that we've been speaking about today. Absolutely. Chris, it's been an absolute pleasure being able to spend an hour with you through this modern technology. And I just <laughs> love what you do, brother. And I love you. Keep doing what you're doing. And I look forward to meeting you in the flesh one day. Yeah, Pete, thank you. It's been a pleasure to follow your work and appreciate your advocacy and everything you do. And also enjoyed spending this time with you. Thank you, brother. Take care. 
The information, views and opinions expressed in this podcast should not be treated as a substitute for nutritional, medical or other advice by a qualified professional. Guests in this podcast express their own opinions, experiences and conclusions. Nothing in this podcast should be used to diagnose, treat, cure or prevent any medical condition. Neither Pete Evans nor any sponsor endorse any views, opinions or conclusions expressed or shared in this podcast podcast.